And I just had this really clear, like, idea of the, the Martian just, like, like, just crawling out of it, just going, Oh, oh I can't even raise my tentacles. Frog! Frog! I couldn't back down, Frog. That's no. God, blimey, Governor. You'll never guess what this is all about. There's aliens on the heath, there is. And instead of going looking at it, so that whoever it is at the Woking Press goes, he's from the lower orders, so he must have must be in some sort of ether-induced stupor. Listen, if you get me a bacon sandwich and a glass of water, son, I'll show you limited intelligence. Hello and welcome to Shark Liver Oil. I'm Matt. I'm Dave. Hello. Dave, it's about that time. Is it? Time for a new book. Yes! And this is The War of the Worlds. There it is. Dun, I can dun, just dun. see you. Pardon? This is brilliant. Have you got a whole theme tune? Am I cutting across a theme tune there? Or is that you... just a little improvised fanfare? Tell me you've heard the War of the Worlds sort of music CD thing. The, well, the Jeff Wayne thing? Yeah. Right. I'll, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you this in the spirit of oh openness and truthfulness. Hang on, hang on. I've got to just make sure I'm sitting down here. Right, okay. <laughs> I am sitting down. Mine... My knowledge of Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds goes as follows. You remember that bit of that Alan Partridge episode where he walks into the travel tavern singing The Chances of Anything Coming from Mars? Yeah. That's it. Are you trying to tell me you've never listened to it? I have never listened to Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. (laughs) (laughs) Dial (laughs) two... Oh, um, I, I, well, I, I, I was not aware of that. Well, can I start go, with a recommendation, which is, um, yeah, Please have do. a listen to it. It's brilliant. So, well, that, that's, I suppose that's kind of good because we're actually doing the book rather than the soundtrack. Um, I've read The War of the Worlds as a 12-year-old in yeah. school. It was one of the, one of the books we did in, in English. I think I didn't get past the first few chapters I I honestly think, I'm not proud of this, but I think what I did in those pre-Wikipedia days was I looked it up on Encarta rather than carry on reading the the extremely late Victorian prose, um, which I now love because it's now like putting on a fake Victorian costume, which I also love. My first experience of this wasn't the... It was actually the Jeff Wayne soundtrack, which my... Um, when, and I was very young. I think I used to listen to it when I was... We tried to work it out, me and my brother, recently. I think I was about, like, maybe eight, uh, maybe younger. Mm-hmm. And dad, my dad used to, like, sit me and my brother down with it on our head, on these big headphones and we'd just sit and listen Brilliant. to it in the dark. Oh, <laughs> cracking. Jeez. That's a, man, that's an education in music right there. Tell you what, parenting goals. want to do that. Yeah, so two small children sitting in the dark listening to a soundtrack. I mean, it, it's far more exciting and far less sort of neglectful that it sounds <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah so that was my first and I absolutely loved that and then um it was only a few years ago when I actually came around to to, to reading the, the the book itself so uh yeah this will be quite interesting um we'll, we'll go through it obviously primarily just talking about it as a book and maybe mm. have a listen to the soundtrack at the end and we'll just do a little bit of as a, a bonus thing at, oh, yeah, at the end that. we'll talk yeah, yeah, about yeah. that. Oh, yeah, 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 let's do it. But, um, but Matt, can I ask you a question? 
which which of the the albums from Jeff Wayne's chronology as a recording artist will we be listening to? Will we be listening to Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds? Will we be listening to highlights from Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds, which he released three years later to carry on milking the cow? Or will we be listening to 2016's, sorry, 2011's version, Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds, The New Generation? Wow, I'm not sure. I'm, I would suggest whichever one is old enough to have been played on a small cassette um, in the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do the original one then, shall we? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that'll be to come. Um, but what we'll do for the, the the first few weeks, we're going to break this down into I think it's four or five parts. Um, uh, as we always do in Shortlive Royal, week up week after week, we'll re- read through a section, talk about it, and then, as ever, you're welcome to to send in your feedback to sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com is the email address, or um, at sharkliveroyal if you want to get us on Twitter. Always welcome to to do so. Okay, the War of the Worlds, Part One. I mean, this week we're reading from obviously the start until, <laughs> rather frustratingly, possibly, um, we're going to stop when we reach the chapter called "The Fighting Begins." <laughs> <laughs> Never let it be said, Matt, that we don't know how to string out a uh, string out the drama of a particular work. It's just how it breaks down, you know, they often, you know, you often get a lot of setup at the start and HG Wells, it turns out, is no different. So um, He loves a setup. <laughs> yeah. So we start, the, the book's actually split into two big parts. So the first is called The Coming of the Martians. Um, and chapter one is The Eve of War. Um, and the very first line, if I just rustle, 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 get it open. Um, is exactly the same as um, the, the 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 music. The, the musical soundtrack begins with the narrator speaking this line. So I, I always hear it in my head, like in my head, whenever I read it. As no one would have believed in the last years of the nineteenth century that this world was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences far greater than our own. You're like, oh, here we go. It's starting. That, this is going to be good. That was an outstanding Richard Burton impression, Matt. Can I tell you, that was <laughs> ge- I'm genuinely blown away. That's brilliant. Uh, that's t- you're too kind. But anyway, yeah. So nice. it uh, it starts. I mean, that, I think that's one of the great opening lines um, that I've ever re- I've ever read. I think um, not not because of the way I've read it, because of the way it's written. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think yeah, it's a really well, If you're going to imagine the otherwise kind of fairly Victorian sounding, you know, like I'm sure it was dramatic in 1896, but actually by itself it does sound quite a lot like the intro to a kind of local news package, third (laughs) item. No one would have believed. You know, if you're going to imagine that, you might as well imagine it in Richard Burton's voice. I think that becomes 40% more interesting as a result. I think it sounds like clickbait. You wouldn't believe, or she she couldn't (laughs) believe what she found, or they didn't know what was happening next. (laughs) Investors in woke are going crazy over this new discovery. <laughs> Click here to find out more. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so I mean, it starts off with um, just this, uh, th- yeah. I mean, it drops you right in it straight away. It's really pacey opening, saying, <clears throat> basically, no one expects the Martians to invade, but here they come, is basically the summary of, of the first paragraph. Um, there's a really brilliant line, which I love, which is, 
where it says, um, slowly and surely they drew their plans against us. And it's just this idea of this implacable progress that we're not even aware of from this alien planet as they're preparing to invade. So it starts with uh, the... It's this guy who, in the in the music, um, he's a journalist, and I immediately assumed it was the same here, but he's actually, I think, he's a philosophy writer, which is a much more 19th century <laughs> idea. I was going to um, say that. Other, <laughs> other careers which are no longer uh, recommended by careers advisors at British schools. Yeah. You imagine him sitting down with H.G. Wells, can't you? Well, Herbert, uh, little Herbie, uh, I mean, you're a bit of a thinker. I imagine you could do rather well as a philosophy graduate. Uh, there's money in that, you know. Hmm. Is there? <laughs> yeah, so there's a philosophy writer and an astronomy, um, both sitting there looking at the sky, and they see the um, these green sort of um, almost like little mini comets shoot out from, from Mars. They see sort of one, and then a second one appears as they're watching, and um, and the the astronomer confidently asserts that the chances of anything manlike on Mars are a million to one. <laughs> so, <laughs> but still, Matt, still they come exactly. Hey, <laughs> hey, that's um, the line I know. That's the line <laughs> I know because of Alan Partridge. Yeah, and uh, when when this guy, this guy who I don't think he's ever named, so he's just called the narrator. Um, and as he's sort of walking home at night, um, he hears the sort of train shunting in the distance and everything seems so safe and tranquil. And although that's sort of a, it's a bit of a, a, a cliche of writing now, I still quite enjoyed that that um, atmosphere of safety and normality um, with this back, backdrop of in the sky. If you look closely, there are these two green um, comets on the way over to Earth. Yeah. I do quite like the idea of, like, from what they knew about astronomy back in those days, he still manages to make this really powerful image of being able to, like, if you were watching at the right time, which, of course, by marvellous coincidence, he is. Other Mm. marvellous coincidences in this book include the fact that the the aliens land near Woking rather than (laughs) anywhere else in the world. You know, they land with an easy commuting distance of central London, which I think is quite funny. Um, But... um, but I love the idea that if you're looking through the telescope at the right moment, you can see, like, whatever it is that launches them, launch them. Mm. And you can, like, trace them across inter, in, interplanetary space. And I just, oh, brilliant. Absolutely loved it. Yeah. Now, it takes, um, I think, about 10 days for the, um, the actual falling star, as it's described in Chapter 2, to arrive. And as you say, it lands on, um, I think it's called Horsell Common um, near Woking. Um mm. And the the next day, the astronomy, um, the astronomer Oglivy, um goes over to the sand pits and discovers it there. And what it is is a giant cylinder, which is really, really hot, and you can hear movement inside. And yeah, int- and uh, for immediately the the yeah. astronomer thinks there's someone trapped in there and tries to help, but he's sort of driven back by the intense heat of it. Um, yeah. and, and he sees the the top of it slowly starting to unscrew. So there's a piece of me at this point, irreverently and absolutely with no respect whatsoever to the tension that's being built here in the story, which is actually being built really well. But because I am who I am, <laughs> I'm looking at this thinking, how big a crater would something that size actually make? You know what I mean? Because he kind of does it like a hole was made in the ground. Yeah. And... You know, fine, fair enough. But um, 
how much of a crater would you actually make? Like, are we, you know, something big enough to contain however many aliens this thing finally contains, and a death ray, it would seem. Mm. Um, you know, would that not just leave a crater that was big enough to sort of, you know, bury the Surrey suburbs <laughs> under a thin layer of rubble? Like, you know, would anybody still be there to see it, do you think? Yeah, I think they work it out a bit later on as to how many... Oh, do are they? in there. I think it's like maybe like um, maybe four or six Martians are in it, um, and the, but the Martian yeah, equivalent the, of the A team. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they've also got the sort of IKEA flat pack assembly stuff in there because they've got a remarkable <laughs> amount of kit in a very small space. <laughs> you can imagine them coming over in the plane, can't you? In the in the in the, the spacecraft, you know, everybody's trying to politely sit on it, all twelve of their tentacles each. So things, you know, occasionally one just drifts off, and it's like fucking hell. Would you? Could you not? Thank you. This is this is very cramped space. Well, I'm sorry, but I need to move away from the. <laughs> flat pack <laughs> tripod that I've got over here to the left. <laughs> I wonder what the IKEA name for the tripod would be. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so the top unscrews, and this is a bit in the you'll hear in the music where it, it, this is a, this is one of the best bits where you can hear this sort of industrial sounding like music, and then just hearing this like as the as the as the uh, top starting to unscrew, it unscrews yeah. just far enough to let some air in. Um, but no further, um, and the uh, they sort of send a the the astronomer tells a journalist who sort of sends a telegram over to London. I love how um, the whole backdrop of this um, when the Martians arrive, the sort of the communication, like people finding out, people find stuff out really slowly. Um, and if yeah. this was a modern story, it'd be, be because yeah. of some sort of desperate government cover up. And in yeah. this, in the end of the 19th century, it's nothing. To, the, the government aren't even trying to keep it under wraps. It's just that communication yeah. lines are so slow that it takes ages to hear anything. And you can well believe, can't you, like how sort of urban myths or less than urban myths, suburban myths in this case, hmm. would um, would end up being you know could perpetuate themselves because he says even says doesn't he later on you know if you were to draw a five mile circle around the point where it impacted outside it nobody would know hmm. and and you know these days people would be live tweeting it you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah, there'd exactly. be a hashtag <laughs> hashtag mars hashtag cylinder hashtag take me to your dealer you know like it so would be, so it many would... so many selfies outside that cylinder <laughs> it would you know if you know Hashtag no filter, hashtag genuinely a tentacle. <laughs> like, it just, and the thing is that I always feel like if you did this in the, in the modern age, if you did this today, you'd have to have all that happening and people getting over it immediately. Like, it would have mm. to be like something where people are like kind of, they're so excited about it for about six hours. And then people are just like, oh yeah, aliens. Yeah, that was yesterday. What? <laughs> what of it? Whatever. Yeah. Hashtag bothered. Hashtag moving on, you know, like it, like, and I love that because then that sets up the hubris, the same hubris that we get here, which is everybody turning up and kind of going, "Oh, well, look at it! I'm sure it'll be fine. We're English after all," mm. and then getting absolutely fucked by it. Um, <laughs> again, I find quite an interesting setting this in the British Empire at the end of the Victorian era is a really interesting time and place to set it. Yeah, I think um, it, it kind of strikes me as a sort of the british version of um independence day insofar as when yeah. uh, when a sort of a 
a country so powerful that the, the threat, the, the biggest threat it can yeah. imagine is something coming from outside rather than from actually on the same yeah. planet. Um, yeah, but, that's interesting. We've, yeah. Got the, we've got Earth pretty much locked down. What else do we need to be scared of? <laughs> yeah, because at sort of the height of like um, the sort of the height of American power, the really yeah. um, the really successful films were films like Independence Day and Armageddon, where stuff just coming from off the planet. Oh yeah, absolutely bang on about that. Bloody mm. hell, yeah. Like because Independence Day '96. Armageddon 98, mm. and it is always, isn't it? Yeah, happenstance is the only <laughs> thing that could possibly threaten the great American empire. That's amazing. I hadn't even thought of that, yeah. So uh, chapter three on Horsell Common, um, this is one of the classic bit, bit, of, uh, bit of snobbery seeps in, where he says he turns up the narrator and there's a crowd gathered round, but there's not, <laughs> there's not many people talking, because, and he sort of says, because, you know, not many people really know anything about astronomy, so nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> I turned up and, as ever, was instantly impacted by the sheep-like ignorance of my fellow man. Looking around from face to face, I realised they were dullards, every last one of them. (laughs) There was no light in the eyes. They knew nothing about telescopes. Mm. (laughs) It's brilliant, isn't it? Like, I just, like, the the kind of... And, again, this feels very characteristic of sort of British um, uh, fiction from this kind of period of of history, you Mm. know, where... The guys in the know are the guys doing the talking, and everybody else is assumed to be incredibly ignorant. Yeah. You know, as if your primary qualification for knowing stuff about the world is having enough money to buy and launder every week a set of starch shirts <laughs> and to purchase moustache pomade, and that was the thing that you needed to have in order to be, like, a, a, you know, a, a credible voice in any kind of a report. Um <laughs> And he continues with his magnificent condescension, as we'll see. Um, it's a sunny day, so quite a large crowd gather, because obviously it's a bit of an event, this, and uh, words travelling even even by the sort of more limited means that they have at this time. And um, he, the narrator, at this point, doesn't believe that there's anything alive inside, but thinks maybe it's a message from Mars and it's something mechanical is going on inside it, which is, I suppose, makes sense. Um Nothing's nothing's happening other than just some movement from within, and the cylinder has unscrewed mm. a bit, but gone no further. So during the course of the day, they start to try and dig it out, and um, yeah. they actually try and because it's cooled now. So one guy actually stands on top of it, and they're trying to unscrew. <laughs> they're trying to unscrew it, and they can't get into it. Um, but yeah, Again, I, I think it's quite it's quite honourable, really, that you stood on top of the thing and tried to unscrew it rather than taking a piss and saying, "I claim this for myself." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I, at this point, I just imagine what what was the Martians be thinking inside? Like, if they've got a little camera, just watch. It's like, what are these <laughs> lot doing? <laughs> I tell you what, lads. I realise that we may have approached this with a certain amount of caution, but honestly, I think we can fucking have these people. We can go through this like a bad curry through a short grandmother. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> uh, chapter four comes around. The cylinder opens. This is sort of the end of the day now. It's sunset, and there's a few hundred people gathered around watching it, and the unscrewing continues now. And it gets to the point where there's about yeah. two feet of shining screw. And I like this idea that there's a this dark, like hot, well, what was hot, sort of burned cylinder, and then the sort yeah. of the, the sort of fresher looking, like newer bit as the as yeah. the cylinder yeah. unscrews, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and yeah. then just falls off. Yeah, I think I I agree with you. I think it's great. Like 
I can see in my mind's eye the difference of textures and, and the kind of shock of seeing something that's clearly made but is also clearly resembles something that's just fallen through an atmosphere and been burned and scorched and mm. so on. Um, and then the contrast is great. I also love the way he's managed to get three chapters worth of tension out of something slowly unscrewing from within. (laughs) This has got to be a one-off in literature, hasn't it? (laughs) Nobody else would have the balls to put three chapters of, of, you know, tense, starchy uh, um, narration Mm. into basically... Like that's flipping amazing. That's that HG Wells take a bow. <laughs> yeah. Uh now once the top comes off, one of the Martians appears and it sort of slowly peers out so these two luminous disc-like eyes and its body is described as a grayish bulk sort of a bare in size and I love this description it glistened like wet leather which I think is a very I, I can see it very clearly yeah it's great isn't it and like he really doesn't miss miss an opportunity to really go for the kind of otherworldly horribleness of this, mm, yeah. um, what is it? Was it we when we did Stephen King? We did The Mist. We yeah. were talking about this breakdown that he did, didn't we? Of um, you know the sort of different types of horror, basically, which was was it, was it terror, horror, uh, horror, and like in it or, or disgust, basically. Right. And he's like, if you possibly can freak people out with what's novel and unknown and just uncanny and terrifying. Yeah. If you can't do that, horrify them with what it does. And if you can't do that, gross them out. <laughs> and and this manages to get straight to terror. Like there's a piece of it which is totally like, oh my God, this is disgusting. But not on that disgusting level, but on this like really disquieting level. Yeah. Oh, it was great. Great. Yeah. Yeah, and it said it's um it's sort of it's got this V shaped mouth and and it's uncomfortable, like heavy, painful movements, and it's because of the the gravity. Um yeah. obviously the difference yeah. between Earth and, and Mars. So because the gravity's stronger, it just it just feels heavier. And I just had this really clear like idea of the the Martian just sort of like just crawling out of it, just going, Oh, oh god, if it raised my tent Frog! Frog! I'm coming back down, Frog. That's no. Oh, we're surrounded by these. Oh, I can't be. No, I can't be bothered. I'm going back down. Oh. That's it, isn't it? The reason it took so long is that there's one guy on the inside trying to move it, and he's just going, This is surprisingly hard work. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what, somebody take over from me. I need to have a cup of tea. Can I have a sit down in my really uncomfortable 12 tentacle chair from Ikea? <laughs> what did we drink on that fly? Oh. <laughs> my head is pounding. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's a sitcom in that. Imagine that. You just do the, do the narrative up to now, but then they don't have the technology to actually, you know, do anything more threatening than this. Mm. And it's just, you're sort of hyper-intelligent, 
but complete, almost completely immobile, constantly hung over intergalactic beings. <laughs> they can, all, yeah, all they can do is lie there. And they've got, like, the, the Earth's foremost scientists walking up to it going, well, it appears to be of limited intelligence. They're just lying there going, oh, God, if you only knew. We know so much, we just can't fucking <laughs> move. Listen, if you get me a bacon sandwich and a gas, glass of water, son, I'll show you limited intelligence, all right? I just... This is awful. You've never experienced this. <laughs> um, the, the the sort of the vision of this kind of panics the crowd when they see it, unsurprisingly, um, and everyone kind of makes a run for it. Apart from this poor shopkeeper who sort of gets nudged into the crater and he falls down, and everyone else runs <laughs> off. And then <laughs> showing the showing the great English concern for their fellow man that we can all be proud of, I think. Yeah. And then the narrator looks back and he sees the silhouette of the sort of shopkeeper's head as he's trying to climb out. And then he gets grabbed by these tentacles and pulled in. And it's the first like really horrific moment when um, when someone is actually attacked. Yeah. A sign of things to come, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think this is going to be the last time we see somebody horrifyingly uh, horrifyingly consumed by these things. But but mm. it's good, isn't it? Again, it's the slow burn. It's so masterfully done with the with the way that it goes, you know, just one, you know, and he kind of falls in by mistake, mm. by accident, you know. It's not, you know, the tentacle leapt out and ate everybody around. Yeah. It's far more like... Just that slow burn again, like like the mist, the Stephen King story. The mm. slow burn is what makes it so effective. I think this bit. Yeah. Now again, the, the chapter five, the heat ray. This is another good example of how the communication is so more primitive here. In that, obviously, people see this thing emerge. I don't know how many people see the guy get sort of grabbed, but everyone gets freaked out and runs away. But then more people show up who are sort of from Woking. And they've uh, and they've just they've, they've basically just heard Sorry. that the ceiling is here, so they're coming to take a look, and they're not aware yeah. of sort of what's happened since. Um, and I quite like yeah. these sort of layers of sort of inquisitive people who keep showing up, and just no yeah. idea what they're in for. Yeah, very very much. And I do. Sorry, I laughed then because I, if we listeners outside the UK may not know <laughs> that Woking is almost the archetypal commuter town. It's fairly, as a matter of fact, I my sister lives there, and it is. Fairly boring, fairly uninspiring, but because it's close to London, it is phenomenally expensive to live there. And so I just, I quite love the idea of like the people from Woking all driving out in their cute little Bijou Mercedes convertibles and that. Just kind of, <laughs> oh gosh, what is, uh, oh heavens, uh, aliens, oh gosh, I seem to have been dismembered by this tentacle beast from the beyond. Oh, oh well, never mind. I shall have to write to the Times. You know, like. I just, I like. There's just something wonderful about the people of Woking being the first people who encounter it with kind of chilly English good manners. <laughs> yeah, I've no idea if that's what it was like 150 years ago, but that's what it feels like to me now. <laughs> now, um, a group of men decide they're going to try and make contact. Um, they they get a white flag. Um, and it's Oglevy, the astronomer, Henderson, who I think's a journalist. And Strutt, who is um, the dude who was standing on top of the cylinder a while back. <laughs> so it's the more foolhardy bunch. And um, yeah. they approach the pit carefully with this white f- flag raised, hoping for a positive reaction from the Martians. Not exactly positive. Um, there's a flash of green smoke, fire, <laughs> and everyone gets incinerated. And then basically the Martians yeah. start sort of 
they basically set half the like um, a big crescent in front of them on fire. It's like some kind of I don't know light speed flamethrower that they've got, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and and I, again, it's really well written, and and I am actually like I have to remind myself how much of this stuff was not a common like sci-fi wasn't a wasn't a genre as far as I know at this point. Hmm. Certainly, nobody kind of said this is science fiction as such, and so all these things, you know, death rays, tentacle beasts, you know, uh, and all of that, you couldn't write this these days because everybody'd be like, yeah, 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 death ray, blah, blah. Hmm. You know, yeah. Um, whereas now this is an incredibly novel idea, and you forget how many, how tightly packed with novel ideas this is yeah. as a as a piece of literature. And and yeah, this sort of light speed thing that can just set people on fire, like yeah, you know, flipping yeah, build a build a story around that for sure. And I love the description of of the how closely wedded H. G. Wells stays to the one man's point of view thing Hmm. you know what i mean he doesn't do the dan brown thing where ostensibly we're looking through one protagonist's eyes really what we're doing is we've got an omniscient narrator who happens to live inside the narrator's head um with this we've just got one guy who says i couldn't really see what happened but basically there was a green flash of light and then everybody was gone Hmm. and then i realized that it was setting things on fire and that's a far more human way of describing something like that unless you're in the middle of it in which case the description would be brief (laughs) yeah Um, everyone obviously makes a run for it and he runs away too and he's he sort of he says at any moment he expects that he's going to be killed and he he almost feels like the um the invaders are toying with him and as soon as he just gets close enough to being safe that's when he's going to get struck down um yeah and that's quite a that that is a feeling that you do you, you can like experience if you even if you're doing something like you know you're playing you're paintballing or something you're making a run for it and you're thinking someone can probably see me and i reckon i'm going to get shot at any second and just <laughs> yeah, as you nearly yeah, save yeah. you think that's when it's going to happen um yeah but he gets away i think i love what you said about that the whole sci-fi and, and novel ideas in this book now being almost cliche it's, it's definitely got a, a similar feel to um to our last book treasure island you know, where these great sort of pioneering stories, which are then t- retold yeah. so many yeah. times that it that it almost damages a little bit because you've you've seen these things retold so many ways since. Um, yeah. Chapter six: yeah. um, the heat ray on the Cobbin Road. So this is sort of him trying to explain what happened from the other side. Um, yeah. Apparently, forty people ended up um, were killed by this around that anyway, yeah. including. Um, the um yeah this this astronomer ogilvy and and the, the other the other guys that he knew basically i think these were his friends um yeah most of the crowd though were, were saved from it because of the the sort of the way that i think i think it's sort of the way the lip of the crater um sort of protects them from the worst yeah. of the heat ray. so there's a little sort of lip if you like where people were which didn't get scorched and then all around it was um yeah the before Oglivy um, went to do this peace offering, they called the military, but it's basically they've called them in to protect the Martians from the public. They're like you've got to set up a cordon here, else someone's going to like wander up and, you know, give the Martians yeah. a kick or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wondered about that because this is really because he's been so specific with the location. Um, the British Army's main base at Aldershot is 
sort of five miles away. Hmm. And I'm kind of I'm really surprised that there hasn't been a telegram of some description going, you know, for attention of British military weird shit going down probably get over here with a couple of guns like you know <laughs> yeah. n- nobody's done that and and it's you know it's like i mean what's the appropriate i can't imagine the appropriate equivalent it's like well no no i can i can i've seen independence day it's like aliens landing at the white house that's what it's like except mm. in in independence day that's the point at which it becomes self-evident that there's a problem <laughs> yeah <laughs> Whereas here, it's the point at which the army goes, should we send some chaps down there? Well, I suppose, uh, if we can spare anybody. Or number two squadron? Oh, number two squadron, obviously. Uh, well, they do some leave, aren't they? They're in the pub. Oh, no, don't, don't worry. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. We'll deal with it tomorrow. Deal with it tomorrow. You know, it's just a fantastically loose, again, response of a superpower to a threat that it can't possibly understand. Yeah, it's a very British reaction, isn't it? So, what, <laughs> it is. Martians, is it? Dear oh, Okay. Right. Well, I was going to have a Very quiet well. afternoon. Could you just send 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 this over to send this over to accounts? See if we can get someone down there this <laughs> afternoon. I suppose. Can <laughs> we not send some of the auxiliaries? <laughs> About that yeah. time, eh, chaps? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, chapter seven: uh, How I reached home. Um, he stumbles away from um, from the common in a daze. He gets back to Maybury where he lives, and everything's just just bizarrely normal considering what he's just been through you know a train rumbles by over the arch um he has a chat with his neighbors and here we have the hilarious common speak of his of his neighbors um shall i shall we have have a look at some of it let me just bring it up let's absolutely yeah this is um this is very of its time isn't it so uh yeah, it's just all spelt incorrectly, isn't it? That's the thing. It's really <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, what news from the common, said I. Yeah? Said one of the man turning. What news from the common, I said. Ain't you been, just been there? Asked the men. <laughs> People seem fairly silly about the common, said the woman over the gate. What's it all about? <laughs> that was the bit where I, I have to tell you I was reading this on my phone over lunch and I nearly laughed aloud and it was it was it was like I was I was like stifling snorts and you usually do that when you're reading a work of comic genius but no it was the spelling of the word abat because you can imagine it Ray Winston playing that role you know in drag obviously shut up what's it all about what's it all about it's alien slags Martians you say oh no fucking Martians. <laughs> yeah, that's it, isn't it? He turns to the camera, he, or he turn, turns towards the camera, looks down to the ground, and just mutters, "Not again, <laughs> fucking! I hate fucking Martians." <laughs> um, he gets home, the narrator, <clears throat> to his wife. Now, this is um, because I listened to the the uh, the, the Jeff Wayne stuff before um, the uh, yeah before I read the book in in the music. He's got this sort of girlfriend who he has to go and find in London. So this was news to me when he came home to his wife in the book. But um, I suppose it gives him someone to talk to so he can, um, it, rather than just explain to us, there's a different sort of person to for him to sort of give you his give his theories to. And he says, you know, the yeah. good the good news, he says to, to comfort his wife, the good news, they can hardly move because they're three times as heavy. Oh, God. They're three times as heavy. 
<laughs> as they were before. Um, yeah. But he says that the um, the only sort of disquieting things here would be a that sort of the gravity could be offset a bit because there's so much more oxygen here. They probably they're probably really high. Like. <laughs> <laughs> so what he's saying is that we've got we've got a bunch of like constitutionally hungover beings who are nonetheless high as kites on the heady laughing gas in the air you'd love that wouldn't you they just come out and they're just like i love you i just love all it i love i well, come here and give me a hug look i got 12 arms i'm give the best hugs come here give me a hug i love you you're amazing and then somebody puts on god is a dj by faithless and it's the end of the book It'd be amazing <laughs> yeah um he says you know yeah so there's the oxygen thing and then there's the fact that you know they're they're obviously um adept at mechanics and building stuff that built this ray so maybe they can they'll be able to move through some kind of mechanism but he says you know mm. we'll kill them if we have to and he says it in a tone he, he remembers that he was pitying them at this stage he was thinking you know these poor things that have landed and they're shit scared and they don't know what they're doing here um and he says it's it, it, when he looks back, he, he thinks that we were we were like a, the dodo, like lording it from its nest as it sees the <laughs> sees the people it's arrive. So good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's it telling. What is it? It's the dodo telling his wife, "Don't worry, dear. We can peck them all to death tomorrow." <laughs> yeah, and like, yeah. it's such a powerful way of pitching the hubris of what what he's assuming. And I just thought, like, brilliant writing, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, chapter eight, last chapter for today, Friday night. Um, again, um, everything seal, feels very normal. This is for the last time, really. Um, the paper um, doesn't print anything about it because Henderson got incinerated, the journalist, so nobody... It, this is another amazing part of the communication. Unless it's from authori- an authorised source, it doesn't really exist. So, um, <laughs> yes. yeah, there's no journalist to say, so it's not so happened. nobody believes it. Yeah. Brilliant. Citizen journalism was not well developed, it would seem, at the end of the British Empire. And I do quite like the idea of there being, like, you know, the local Woking newspaper or whatever, Hmm. back when towns had their own newspapers. And um, just somebody turning up and, and, you know, in the accent, which we've seen so faithfully reproduced, going, God blimey, Governor, you'll never guess what this is all about. There's aliens on the heath, there is. And instead of going looking at it, whoever it is at the Woking press goes, well, I assume... He's from the lower orders, so he must have he must be in some sort of ether-induced stupor. <laughs> Clearly, it's not worth walking down the road to find out whether, indeed, we have been contacted by messengers from the beyond. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Then we'll settle back down to my opium. You know, like, just, just kind of... How the hell does this go on for a day and a half and nobody hears about it? <laughs> yeah, so... Um... Yeah, Izzy says the daily routine was going on as it had done for countless years, but at the same time, there's hammering coming from the pit, and now no one can get close because this searchlight keeps sweeping the common, and uh, the heat ray is close behind yeah. if it spots anybody. Which uh, that again is such a great atmospheric image of this yeah, dark is, common. Yeah, and there's this just beam just every so often searches across, and if it sees anything. Yeah. Um, immediately gone at about 11 o'clock at night the soldiers finally arrive two companies show up and create a cordon around the um 
around the the, the, the sort of the site. It, the interesting thing here is, I originally, when I first listened to this and read it, I immediately went to. I sort of placed these soldiers a little too late. I always always imagined them to be sort of First World War era, like artillery. Because oh, yeah. I think it's because you hear artillerymen earlier uh, later on, but yeah. it's actually a little yeah. earlier than that, isn't it? So we're talking more about sort of that sort of weird bit between cannons and artillery. So it's artillery, but kind of primitive for its time. You're talking about more like red sh- yeah. red coats rather than yeah, red absolutely, shirts, yeah, yeah. red coats. Red shirt. Um, <laughs> well, well, Matt, as we shall see, <laughs> fronting slip there. Yeah, but it's more yeah. red coats than um, than sort of Tommies. Yeah, absolutely, and um, uh, and this that sort of horse-drawn artillery era, isn't it? Back, yeah. back when that was the the height of of military technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did, but that does raise the rather marvelous image of we can imagine uh, Michael Caine in Zulu shortly after having come back from having done a lot of horrendous and completely questionable things to other people, um, standing on the you know giving it the full standing on the on the lip of the thing as uh, Lieutenant Bromed. Um, <laughs> You know, refusing to take his coat off even as the heat ray burns through it. Um, if if yeah. nobody's seen the movie Zulu, probably don't. It doesn't paint the British Empire in the best light. And the funny thing is that it was trying to. Um, but, um, but I just quite love this idea of these guys who think that, you know, red is the right colour for desert warfare. Mm. Definitely would line up between humans and aliens with their backs to the aliens like that definitely sounds to me like a move that would be embraced by the british military of the 1890s (laughs) yeah um and then so so this is a great point sort of tense point to leave it the cordons set up around the perimeter there's hammering coming from the pit um the martians are have this heat ray searchlight system set up so nobody can get close so there's a standoff and then the second cylinder arrives nearby yeah mm. yeah what an ending <laughs> i mean i can say again you know we absolutely have ended at the chapter called the fighting begins but that is a great ending you know what i'm saying like mm. that there is is a fantastic the second cylinder arrived although Although it does again raise the question of why these aliens, as they as they visited Earth, were so keen to concentrate themselves entirely in the commuter belt outside West London. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a really interesting point about it, isn't it? In that um, the the alien invasion of Earth in this book is basically the alien invasion of the UK, and to, and to, to be honest, to yeah, be specific, absolutely. the southeast of England. Um, that yes. is sort of the yeah, world, even that, if isn't you like. It? Yeah, and I, I think that's. I think that does speak again to this, um, to just how the world was and and how the world was viewed um, through sort of Victorian yeah. England. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, think, to, I think I mean, there's an interesting thing there. Yeah, go on. Isn't there about how how the like to a certain extent that's still true? Like, you know, Great Britain sees itself in a very different way these days, but. I think if you ask most people from the southeast of England what they think of when they think of Britain, it would be a long time before they listed something from outside the southeast of England. Hmm. And there's still this sense of this fulcrum, this this is who we are, this is where we're from, which I don't share because I'm not from the southeast of England. But um, But it's this really interesting piece of like... If you wanted to strike at the heart of Earth, you struck at the heart of England, and the heart of England is the bit around London, mm. and apparently the rural bit just outside London where the rich people live. And <laughs> I, that's just really interesting to me that that's the locus of the story. 
Yeah. Um, in America, I don't know what would the equivalent of that be in America. It would be like a, be a be an alien invasion starting in Hollywood or Aspen or you know upstate well, New York, wouldn't it, it? It's interesting because it kind of does happen in Independence Day as well. The invasion of Earth is again basically the invasion of America. There, there's a, at the end, yeah. there's a nod towards rest of the world when like everyone starts <laughs> celebrating because the Americans oh, have blown the ships up. Well, no. No, but before that, there's the bit, isn't there, where the British army have been sitting in the desert next to this massive alien ship for years, despite all their experience that we've seen in Woking, um, <laughs> waiting for the Americans to tell them what to do, Yeah, um, which I found, I found quite pleasing. And I'm really hoping there is a scene later on in this book where the Americans can be found sitting next to a crashed spaceship in, you know, in New York going, well, we've been waiting for the British to tell us what to do this entire time. Thank, <laughs> thank God they finally worked it out. <laughs> Will they work it out? Well, you'll have to listen. Oh, actually, you could just read the book. Or you could just listen to Shartleave Royal over the next few weeks and we will let you know. Yeah. Um, If you have any thoughts on the first first section or, um, you know, if you want to get in early for the second part, the second part we're going to read as far as, um, again, it's quite a good chapter to to keep with. What had happened in Surrey is where we're stopping next time. So, so yeah, we're not getting much further from Southeast England. What had happened in Surrey? Do, do you reckon they'll go as far as describing the individual village cricket matches or will we have to make those up out of our own imagination? Not that I want to say this is very provincial, but that follows the chapter called In London. So um, I think we're very resu- resolutely staying in the Southeast of England. <laughs> I actively insulted they didn't bother to give an account of what happened in in Birmingham. <laughs> what happened in Birmingham? The Martians took a look and thought, oh, no, leave oh, Just for a second, Matt, I thought you were going to resist the urge. Just for a second, I thought you were going to be the bigger man. No, as opposed to what happened in Manchester, of course, which is that the Martians turned up took one look and decided it really was not worth the effort at all. <laughs> what happened in Birmingham was the cylinder was on the way to it and then one of the Martians just tapped the other one on the shoulder and just went, look, they've been through enough. Just <laughs> 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 look at it. What, where, whereas Manchester, what happened there was they were on their phones on the way in flicking it through, looking at the trip advisor reviews for the city of Manchester as a whole. And they went, which football teams? No, 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 no. Absolutely not. <laughs> In case you're wondering what's going on here, um, it's, this is just us <laughs> gently ribbing each of the cities. It's not that we've got any agenda against either of them. But anyway. <laughs> no, no, good, no, no. I, Manchester's a delightful place, and yeah. I'm sure Matt would say the same of Birmingham. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so that is where we're leaving it um, this week. Hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you're going to uh, listen in next week as we continue our progress through the war of the world. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs>